You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. A while back, I uh, was sitting in a church service, not unlike this one, and there was worship music going on in the background. And some people were standing. I was choosing to sit in this moment. I had my eyes closed and my hands were open. I was taking deep breaths. It was this really sweet contemplative space. I was drawing near to God in prayer. And then I started to hear this noise. It was faint. It was subtle. I had to lean in to hear it. Naturally, I'm a bit broken out of my my prayerful space, so I kind of look behind me. I don't want to break too much from the prayer, and I don't really see the source of the sound, so I try to re-enter into that contemplative space. I take another deep breath. So now I'm out of it, right? There's no way I'm re-entering that same prayerful space. And so I turn around. I'm like, where is this noise coming from? And sure enough, a couple rows back, I see a woman who's by herself. She looks a little disheveled and tired. She's got a a child carrier, a baby carrier, in the seat next to her with a pacifier and a toy sitting there. And she is trying to stay engaged with what's going on in the room, but at the same time, she's got a baby that's having none of it. This child was inconsolable. And I don't have kids, but I know from those of you in this room who have kids that there's sometimes, there's just nothing you can do. You just gotta wait things out. Uh, It's like a tornado, and you're just sitting in the storm shelter waiting for this child. Uh, I see parents smiling because they're like, yep, that's how it goes sometimes. And this woman was in the midst of that, trying to console her little baby. And so I turn back around, and again, I've been interrupted from this prayerful space, and so thoughts start flooding my head, right? And one of those thoughts stuck with me. It was a question. I was like, can't one of the pastors or elders just come and get them out of here? Making a lot of noise. They're interrupting my prayerful space. They're keeping me from having a holy moment with the Lord. And after sitting with those thoughts, quickly, I realized how corrupt they were. In desiring to protect my holy space, I was actually wanting to prevent someone else from entering into it. I was putting up a wall where God hadn't put a wall. We're in the middle of a sermon series here at the Spring Midtown called Christ's Vision for the Church. Uh, We're going through the book of Ephesians together. And in Ephesians, we learn a couple things. One, we learn the powerful, comprehensive nature of the gospel, that it has come to heal us individually, but also to heal all things in the cosmos. Uh, But we don't stop just with the gospel. We actually learn from Ephesians what the church is called to look like in light of that gospel. And so we learn in chapter after chapter who we collectively are supposed to be. And today, uh, we're going to talk about the walls that exist in our world, the walls that we put up, the walls that our world puts up to divide people. We're going to learn what the gospel does with those walls and what we as the church are called to do with those walls. So if you have a Bible, turn with me in it to the book of Ephesians. It's near the back of your Bibles. I'm going to be reading in chapter 2 from verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We're also going to have the verses up on the screen if you'd like to follow along there. Starting in verse 11. So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting together that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near, for through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I opened up talking about how we're going to discuss divisions and walls in the world, but it might have blindsided you that in verse 11 here, Paul is actually talking about something different. He's talking about foreskin, which is not a common conversation topic and makes a lot of us squeamish. He brings up the circumcision and the uncircumcision. And here's the reality. I could choose, and our elders could choose, and and those of us that, that gather together to think about sermons, we could choose to not go through that verse. I could choose to start somewhere else. But it didn't feel right to me to cut off this part of the passage. Yeah, yeah. That's a deep cut. Some of you took a second. Some of you may not get it. In like 10 minutes, you're going to laugh. We're going to know. You understand. (laughs) No, Paul starts with this, this description of the circumcision and the uncircumcision. And that seems a little odd to us. But in reading about it, I felt like, This is an incredible representation of the divisions that Paul was facing in his world, the things going on in his world, and they can speak powerfully to the divisions that exist in our day. So I actually want to talk about this. This is helpful for us today. So back in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, we learn that the Jewish people were selected, set apart by God, to be uh, the people through whom he would redeem and reconcile all things. He said, hey, I'm going to bring about healing for everything that's been broken in the world, and I'm going to do it through your family. And in return, the Israelites would have to represent God to the world. They'd have to live differently. They'd have to choose to trust and follow God. And this was called a covenant. That was an ancient agreement that that people would make back in the day. And this covenant was sealed by an act of circumcision, which sounds weird to us at first. But if God is redeeming the world through a family, think about it. How were families made? We don't have to go into detail. You understand. You all know how families are made. And so every time circumcision was performed, it was a reminder to these people that they have been set apart by God to see this family come and redeem and restore the world. It was a very practical thing for them at this time. It made a lot of sense. Every time you make a new family member, you're inviting them into this redemptive and restorative group of people. And those people were to represent God's character, which meant they were supposed to care for the needy and the vulnerable. They were supposed to seek justice in the world where uh, the rest of the nations around them were largely unjust. They were supposed to care and respect God and the sacred. Uh, They were supposed to, to tend to the planet well. 
These are all parts of God's character, all things that God cares deeply for, and these people were supposed to represent him. They were basically supposed to be this reminder of God's love and grace. And yet, because they were selected by God, they started to develop a little bit of self-righteousness. They started to believe that they were chosen not because God chose them, but because they were morally superior or ethnically superior. And the prophets condemn this all over the Old Testament. They're like, you guys have messed up. You've missed the point of why God has called you out of the world. And so rather than being God's representatives, rather than loving and serving the nations around them, they did the opposite. They perpetuated division and hatred. They were unjust where they needed to be just. They neglected the poor and the needy. They didn't take care of the planet. All of those things that they were called to be, they failed to be. And so they actually started to hold their noses up at the rest of the nations around them. They believed that since they were selected, they were going to be the only ones that God redeemed. And so they looked at the Greeks and the Romans earlier, the Canaanites and the Philistines. They looked at all these nations around them and they said, we're actually God's special chosen people. It was this ethnic and religious arrogance that existed. And that was prevalent in Paul's day. That's what he's talking about. When he says the circumcision versus the uncircumcision, he's talking about this division that the Jews perpetuated in the first century and that others responded to. Greeks were not allowed in Jewish temples, and Jewish people were not allowed in Greek temples. There were clear physical and spiritual walls that prevented people from crossing those boundaries. An example of one, just so you know how deep this ran. In the first century, Jewish men were not permitted to help a Gentile woman, which is a non-Jewish woman, they were not permitted to help her with childbirth for two main reasons. One, if they touched a Gentile woman, it would make them unclean, because that Gentile woman is unholy. She's one of those pagans. But two, it would mean that they would have assisted in bringing another Gentile into the world. They believed that bringing another life into the world would mean working against God's redemptive plan because that life would be unholy. This is not just a surface level division. This runs deep. This is centuries old. And what's fascinating is in this division, you kind of get every uh, sort of division that we live with in our world. You've got ethnic division. You've got political division. You've got religious and ethical division. All of the things that we use in our world to divide ourselves from one another, it's present in the circumcision versus the uncircumcision. And we like to think today that we're beyond that, right? That we are enlightened people. We're not like those ancient crazies, right? We've solved a lot of these problems. And I think a cursory examination of the world shows us that these same sorts of divisions exist all around us. Republicans versus Democrats, or liberals versus conservatives. Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter. Rich versus poor. Men versus women. Suns versus Lakers. I mean, I had to shout out the Suns. They're killing it right now. Truly, though, these sorts of divisions, they're inherent to us as humans. This isn't an ancient and religious thing. This is a contemporary human thing. And then when we load uh, religious language around it, when we start to say that God has esteemed us, then we start to actually look down on other people ethically. We start to think that we're somehow better. That's the division that Paul is talking about. That's the division that exists in our world. And so we've got this Jewish group who, to be fair, to their credit, has the hope of God's redemption and restoration in mind, right? Right? The covenant didn't go away. God is still being faithful. And so they're looking forward to when God redeems all things. However, they're self-righteous in it. They think that God is actually working through them specially and that they have moral superiority. 
But there's another group here, the uncircumcision, the Gentiles. That's any non-Jew. And Paul says in verse 12 that these Gentiles, they were without God in the world, that they didn't have hope. And those are strong words, right? No hope and without God in the world. What's Paul getting at here? Well, I actually did some digging into the, the major modes of thinking in the Greek world when Paul was writing. And what's fascinating is that a lot of it was pretty hopeless. See, they didn't believe, as the Jewish people did, that everything was moving towards this healing and redemption. They didn't have that big picture. They didn't believe that God was actively doing that in their midst today. They actually believed that really life was mostly about dying. Stoic philosophy uh, characterized the day at that time. The Stoics were people who believed that well, life was really about denying your passions so that you didn't get too worked up about good things or bad things. That you could kind of push emotions away and just live this Stoic life. That's where we get the idea of having a Stoic expression, an emotionless expression. But those people didn't have a big picture hope. They believed that when you died, you died. And that was kind of it. And there's actually some quotes here that I wanted to share with you because I think they're in some ways sad and in some ways kind of funny. Uh, there was a, a Greek poet, Theognis, uh, who said this. He said, no mortal is happy of all on whom the sun looks down. No mortal is happy. That's like mid-2000s emo boy stuff, right? <laughs> That's something you don't really want to put on your Instagram as an inspirational thing. That was Theognis' understanding of life. Here's another one from the same guy. He says, rejoice, O my soul, in thy youth. Oh, that's kind of nice, right? Yeah, rejoice in... He's not done. Rejoice, O my soul, in thy youth. Soon shall other men be in life, and I shall be black earth in death. Life is fleeting, so enjoy it while you got it. Life sucks, and then you die. And again, to, to the Stoics' credit, they cared about virtue. They cared about pursuing truth. They weren't completely far off. I don't want to caricature them too much. But the reality is they didn't have this end game hope. They didn't believe that all things were being redeemed and restored. And so they believed that death was really it. There was another Stoic philosopher named Seneca. And he emphasized that death was actually what we were made for. That before life, we had death. And after life, we have death. And those things are peaceful. And life is this weird frame of suffering in between. And so you basically just have to learn how to be virtuous in the middle of that suffering. And he actually advocated that in some circumstances, if your suffering is so great, just end it. Off yourself. Because suicide would mean coming to the peace of death. And he actually ended up killing himself at the end of his life. So when we hear Paul say that Gentiles are living without hope in the world, he's really meaning it. They don't have this big picture of redemption and restoration like the Jews at that time did. And what's fascinating is that our postmodern world that we live in today looks a little similar. It's not dissimilar from the Greek world. In the 20th century, there was a big shift that happened in Europe and in America. It was the shift that philosophers and, and sociologists call a shift from modernism to postmodernism. So before the first two world wars, it was common for people to believe that we as humans were pretty good inherently. And if we just like got ourselves together, if, if a clearer heads prevailed, cooler heads prevailed, we would solve the problems of our world. We'd build a society that's like a utopia. We'd learn how to live together well. And then World War I hit, and then World War II hit, and Mussolini hit, and Stalin hit, and Hitler hit. And all of a sudden, after World War II, the world is in shambles, and people are looking around saying, humans are actually pretty messed up. We're not inherently good. And so sociologists and philosophers started to see this trend where people said, you know what? 
we're not really moving towards anything good at all. We're not really moving anywhere at all. That's what postmodern philosophy brought into the world. There's a postmodern philosopher named Jean-Francois Lyotard. He's a postmodern thinker, a, a, a great a kind of representative of what postmodern thinking looks like. And he wrote that in our postmodern world, we are unable to accept a narrative that says everything will be healed. We are unable to align ourselves around a cohesive narrative because all of the things that we've seen that have been broken in our world. And so we just become inherently cynical and skeptical people. We, we become people who can't see hope in our world because you've got a church that's abusive or because you've got a, a guy in political office who's abusive or because you've got at any moment nuclear buttons that could be pressed and we could all blow each other up. And that's why in our world we love dystopian fiction. All the stories we tell are about a future that doesn't have a whole lot of hope. That's why we love zombies. There's a new zombie movie that comes out every year. It's weird. It's the same thing, and yet we're obsessed with the fact that the world's not really going uh, towards anything good. We believe it's a battle between uh, nuclear holocaust or global warming. We're obsessed with this uh, terrible end that humans are moving towards. And that's why things like depression and anxiety and suicide have skyrocketed in the last few decades. There's mental health professionals in this community who I've talked with, and they've said this past year has been brutal. Hopelessness is in the air we breathe. It's in our lungs. It's all around us all the time. The hope for God's redemption and restoration, it's not there in our world. And as a, a brief but I think important side note, if you're in this room and you felt that sense of hopelessness, if you've breathed that air, if you're someone who wonders what the point is, we get it here. We understand that here. Many of you have felt that. But there's another story. There is a story of hope. There's a story of life and not death. And I exist as a pastor to live out that story of life and to invite you into it. This church exists to invite you into a story of life, not death. There's hope here. So don't be silent if you feel that sense of hopelessness. Be around these people. Ask us questions. Come to the Q&A. Dialogue with us. Do life with us. Because there's a different story. And Paul talks about that different story in this passage. Did you notice the big but in verse 13? I've managed to talk about circumcision and butts today. I'm really killing it. There's a big but in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ. Paul is pointing out that Christ, Jesus Christ himself, is the solution to all of these divisions, to the hopelessness that we feel and all of the ways that we build up walls to keep each other out. And he uses a couple phrase that, phrases that I think are striking. The first phrase he uses is that Christ is our peace. Hear that again. Christ is our peace. That's not Christ brings peace. That's not Christ carries peace and hands it to us. It's Christ is our peace. How can peace arrive in a person? How does that work? Right. I've got a picture that I think will help. Uh, I know of a couple siblings uh, that have fought most of their lives. They've had a rough go of things. It started when they were kids, typical sibling rivalry things, but it kept escalating. And then they became adults and had their own families, and it kept escalating. And one day, it blew over. And they decided, we can't be in the same room with one another anymore. We can't even communicate with one another. If you come near me or my family, I will hurt you. It was violent between them. They harbored wrath in their hearts. And for years, this persisted. It seemed like these siblings were going to go to their deathbed without reconciling. But something happened. Their mom got sick. 
she went to her deathbed. And suddenly, for both of these siblings, all of those divisions melted because they had a shared love for their mother. They were only able to reconcile because they realized that their shared love trumped everything else. That the love that their mother had for them and the love that they experienced for her, that was the thing that could bring about reconciliation. And so they met together. And now they have regular meals together. Years of division and wrath were torn down by a shared love. Worldly divisions can't be solved by worldly thinking or ideologies. That's why the talking heads on cable news will never convince each other of anything, because they don't have a shared love. They're just spitting ideas back and forth at one another. The only thing that can solve our worldly divisions is a transcendent, powerful love that unifies us. And that love arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came so that every person, independent of their religious background, independent of their sexual orientation, independent of their moral aptitude or lack thereof, he came so that everyone could draw near to God. He came so that love and grace could be experienced. He came so that we could be truly human. All of those divisions mean nothing when we have a unified love in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here when he says Jesus is our peace. But he's not just a thing. He actually does something as well. Paul says he breaks down the dividing wall. He's actually referring to a real wall that existed. I wanted to share this with you guys because I thought this was interesting. And this is the temple, the Jewish temple in the first century. I had a laser pointer, but it broke, so I can't use the fancy laser pointer. But uh, basically the layout of this, you've got this big outer wall. Off to the left here, you've got baths that were used for cleaning so that you could clean yourself before entering the holy place. And then you've got this big courtyard around the temple. And that courtyard, everyone was allowed in. Gentiles could go in there if they'd like. But then in the central temple, there were clear dividing walls. Only certain people could enter that central temple. And then even farther into the temple, other people couldn't enter. Women, people who were sick. There's the Holy of Holies where only the priest could enter. So there was wall after wall that was preventing the love and grace of God from getting to the world. That's what was happening in the temple here. Paul is saying that Jesus has broken down that wall. That's what he means when he says Jesus abolished the law and commandments here. That wall has been torn down. And you might think, if you've read a bit of the Bible, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the commandments but to fulfill them. So what's Paul getting at here, right? He says Jesus has abolished the law and the commandments. Well, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that morality or virtue doesn't matter anymore. He's not saying that behaving well doesn't matter. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. He clearly cares about living a certain way. What Jesus is saying is that nearness to God is no longer achieved because of how morally apt you are. Nearness to God is not dependent on the family or the religion you practice. None of us are brought near to God because we've been raised in the right thing or because we believe the right ideas. We're only brought near to God in Christ. It's the only thing. All the other walls that we build up, religious and social and ethnic, those things have been torn down, and we can all draw near to Jesus independent of who we are. There's a really sweet story uh, of a, a missionary who lived in the 20th century. Her name was Rita Snowden. And Rita uh, talks about, during one of the world wars, uh, some French soldiers. And these soldiers uh, actually lost one of their comrades in battle. He died. And so they were wanting to give him a proper burial. And so they showed up in this enemy town to try to bury him. And the Catholic priest comes out and greets them. 
they say, hey, can we bury our friend in this Catholic church's graveyard? And the Catholic priest says, well, I have to ask, like, was he baptized Catholic? Was he Catholic? Was he raised in the church? And they're like, we don't know. He was our buddy in the war. We don't know uh, what he was doing when he was a baby. And so the priest says, what? Well, if I can't know he's Catholic, I can't bury him here. So the priest walks back into the church, and his friends are still like, what do we do with his body? So they step outside of the wall of the graveyard, and they bury him there. And then they go to sleep that night, and they wake up the next morning thinking, we should probably go back just to make sure everything's okay with him. So they show back up, and his grave is nowhere to be found. There's no displaced dirt. They're super confused. Where did his body go? Where'd the grave end up? And just as they're about to leave, confused and, and uh, befuddled by what has happened, the Catholic priest comes out and says, hey, guys, last night I was praying, and I felt troubled. And so in the middle of the night, I got up, and I rebuilt the fence. The wall was expanded, and their friend was now in the graveyard. The love of Christ moves the wall so that every person can experience his love and grace. That's what Jesus has done for all of us. That's what he's done for the world. And that means that none of us, none of us in this room can start to look at our neighbors and look down on them. None of us can. We can't discredit them based on creed or color of their skin or how they behave or their morality. Because we have not done anything to draw near to God. It hasn't been based on us. And if it hasn't been based on us, that means it's not based on anything that they do either. It's only based on the love of Jesus. That's the gospel message. Paul talks about this in another letter he writes in Corinthians. He implores us not to judge other people now. And then he asks a really potent rhetorical question. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? The answer for us is nothing. Our ability to exist in the first place, the breath in our lungs, they've been given to us by God. And so we start to see our atheist neighbors, our Muslim neighbors, our Buddhist neighbors, or our gay neighbors differently. Because of Jesus, we see every person as a beloved one, a son and a daughter, who Jesus has come to save from death and bring into life. Every person you interact with. Jesus Christ tears down all of the walls that we've put up. He allows us to welcome people who are on the other side of those walls. And that means that the church becomes something radically new. You'll notice Paul says that we are a new humanity in the church. And the word for new there is interesting. It's kainos in Greek, which means uh, new in substance. Not just new chronologically or in time, but an entirely new thing exists in the church. What he's saying there is that the church is going to look radically different than anything else you see in the world. Because there's an old humanity that existed that built up walls. There's an old humanity that existed that had divisions in it. But there's a new humanity in the church that's been united by Christ that doesn't have those walls. We come to the door of the church being defined by divisions, but we enter the church and sit in the church no longer defined by those divisions. We're instead defined by a like-minded unity around Jesus. There's a guy named Esau Macaulay. He's a great theologian who's doing a lot of good work today. Uh, he talks about this uh, in relation to kind of ethnic differences that exist in our world. And I just loved his quote, so I wanted to share it with you guys. We've got it up here as well. He says, God's vision for his people is not for the elimination of ethnicity to form a colorblind uniformity of sanctified blandness. 
That's a good, good phrase, sanctified blandness. We aren't supposed to be people who all look and act the same. We're supposed to be people who bring diversity in and then are unified around one thing, the love and grace of Jesus. He says, God sees the creation of a community of different cultures united by faith in his son as a manifestation of the expansive nature of his grace. This expansiveness is unfulfilled unless the differences are seen and celebrated, not as ends unto themselves, but as particular manifestations of the power of the Spirit to bring forth the same holiness among different peoples and cultures for the glory of God. You don't just become a whitewashed person coming into here. You don't just become a generic mold of a Christian. You bring all of your diversity in and you become unified in the middle of that diversity with other people who are different than you. And so you can be a Republican or you can be a Democrat. You can be black or you can be white. You can be a Suns fan, you can be a Lakers fan. And that takes a lot for me to say. Our differences, rather than dividing us, can be celebrated because of what God has done with them. He's torn them down. And so the church becomes a diverse group of people who all share the same identity. We've been saved by the love of Jesus. And we're disciples of Jesus. But here's the truth. A lot of us still have walls in our lives. We still build up things, mentally or physically, to keep others out. We build walls of piety. We start to condemn others and keep them out of our thing and elevate ourselves. We build walls of prejudice, keeping others out because they look or sound or act different than we do. We build walls of preference. This is a big one in the American church. We build walls of preference that say, I just kind of want to be around people I like. I just kind of want to be around people that have the same interests as me. And so churches form cliques. It gets really ugly. Some of you have been in churches where that happens. That's not what the church should look like. So the question we should ask ourselves is, what are your walls? What are the barriers that you put up that prevent others from drawing near to Jesus? What are the standards that you've set that Jesus might be wanting to tear down so that someone else might come to know him, so that someone else might come to follow him? Think about those walls this week. Really think about them. Pray about them. Reflect on the people who are here that you might need to love better. Consider the people out there in your work, uh, in your neighborhood that you might be able to invite here. Because the church isn't a social club where people get to feel good about themselves. That's not what this is. The church is not a pep rally of positivity where all the pain and brokenness that exists in the world get ignored. The church is a place where the dividing walls of the world are broken down. It's a place where healing happens across every divide. It's a place where every person is welcome to give their life to Jesus, to really follow him, to be transformed by him. And that's what's happening in this room every week. That's what's happening in your community groups throughout the week. That's what hap what's happening when we serve at Hope Women's Center. That's Christ's vision for the church. Friends, would you pray with me?